Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Let's have all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey dog, do you like BarkBox? Well, you heard him, folks. And luckily for you, BarkBox is offering an opportunity to receive one free extra month of BarkBox at BarkBox.com. For humans, BarkBox is a delivery of four to six natural treats and super fun toys curated around a surprise theme each month. For dogs, BarkBox is like the joy of a million belly scratches. To receive one month free, go to getbarkbox.com slash babes. Again, that's getbarkbox.com slash B-A-B-E-S. From Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Ginny. I'm Nat. And I'm Jen. And we are the Art History Babes. Yeah! Woo! We're, we're back. We're here. The babes are back in town. The babes are back in town. <laughs> <laughs> I love that song. It was a jam. Yeah, it was a jam for sure. It was, yeah, it was definitely. When did that song come out? I don't know, like the eighties. Yeah, whenever the boys were back in town. Yeah. <laughs> whenever the boys came back to town was when that song came out. Yeah, that makes sense. They're still back. Yeah, yeah. they yeah. never left town again. Yeah. yeah, which is it's actually kind of tragic. Like <laughs> yeah. the boys, um, just um, they came back and then they never left. And one of them is living in their mom's basement. And now, yeah. now we got a boy with a drinking problem. And so it goes. And I they, hope the boys are okay. They still get together on Friday nights and sing that song with their anthem. Oh, right, God. right. It's so depressing. <laughs> it's, so right. it's kind of sad this now. It's just turning into like a dark Netflix original yeah. TV like series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The, the boys make... are like 45. <gasps> That's such a good idea. I want to make a Netflix original series. The boys are back in town. And there's like one episode that's like them in the 80s. And it's just like heroic. Yeah. Yeah. Like they come back from college yeah. and they're just like, yeah, we're fucking back. And like, and then it's like fast forward to 2017 and it's just like, what, you know? what did we do? Like what happened? I think you know, that's like, a great idea. Uh, what was it called? Documentary Now. I feel like Documentary <gasps> Now would do a great version of this. That Documentary we're in the Now forever. Damn. All right. Well, that's my idea. So if someone oh. makes that now, um, this is on record. Documentary <laughs> Now. Copyright. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're back in town, and we are starting our thesis series. Yes, yes. The thesis series presented by the Art History Babes. <laughs> oh. oh, I love it. That July was great. 2017. It just I... seemed like 
right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. That, that felt oh, right. I've yeah. been really into the Great British Baking Show recently. So, <laughs> I like, saw that. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> oh. It's all things pleasant, just wrapped into one Bake Off. God, it's lovely. I love things narrated by British people. Right? Have you guys watched... A Tale of Three Cities on Netflix. Yeah, that's your boy. That's, um... Yes. What's his name? Dr. James Fox. He is a fox. He yeah. is a fox. I was like, he's the Hello. He's Hello. The <laughs> <laughs> Just look on YouTube, Dr. James yeah. Fox. He's on BBC. He does the Tale of Three... Three Cities, right? Yeah. yeah. And then he does um, a history of color and three colors. He does blue, white, mm. and gold. All are excellent. Oh, and yeah, so we talked about that before. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. On our color theory episode, he just is the so great. Oh, he's really great. lovely. He's I a love, very lovely person. I love that guy. Yeah. Man. What was his first name? James. 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 Dr. James Fox. Fox. Not to be confused nice with name. the also great Jamie Fox. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, For yes. very different reasons, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah. Jamie, we love you. So yes, we are doing uh, the thesis series. These will be shorter episodes where each of us will talk about not necessarily like the crux of our theses, because I personally am tired of talking about my own thesis in exact detail, but the major themes. And um, so you'll hear one of our voices a little bit more than the others, but everyone, it'll still be kind of our same style of a conversation over wine. And blackberries and baby mm. carrots and hummus and almonds. <laughs> so um, I will be talking about a little something I like to call Egyptomania. I have been fascinated with and really interested in Egypt since I was six years old. I learned first and foremost about the mummification process, of course. That's usually, not usually, but that is often what draws people into ancient Egypt. And I talked about the mummification process in terms of what organs were put in what jars and how they were removed for show and tell. And my teacher was like, <laughs> someone shut her down. Shut this shit down. And that was um, the beginning of a, of a long series of me being really interested in ancient Egypt. So coming forward to now, uh, a lot of my research for my thesis had to do with uh, ancient Egyptian monuments and the reception of ancient Egypt in early modern Europe, specifically in Rome. So when we talk about ancient Egypt, it's such an interesting concept. It's such an interesting history. And it really has remained one of the most popular and influential um, ancient societies uh, still today. So the largest collections of ancient Egyptian artifacts and art are not actually in Egypt but rather in places like Paris, London, Berlin, and New York City, which evokes a really big question. Why is the West, why is Europe, and by extension the States, so obsessed with ancient Egypt? And when did it start? So I am by no means like an Egyptologist. I'm not an expert in all things ancient Egypt. I just have happened to study various aspects of it throughout my life. So this is really going to be more of an approach to different things in terms of art in ancient Egypt and covering kind of a broad um, spectrum of time, but also geographical place. Uh, so it's important to kind of talk about how ancient Egypt sort of became this 
mythos in a lot of way and how a lot of their art and artifacts became fetishized, coveted, appropriated, and admired in Europe and later America. So I'm going to start it out with the Greeks and Romans. So they both respectively conquered and controlled um, ancient Egypt at various different points. Of course, um, the fall of the Egyptian Empire with the death of Cleopatra, it was then under Roman control. But both uh, ancient Greeks and Romans really admired a lot about ancient Egypt. They felt that they were kind of the origin of science and mathematics, and that it was kind of this font of original wisdom. And even from the onset, because when we think of ancient Egypt now, there is a lot of sort of like magical mysticism that we sort of place in our associations with them. And that was started a really, really long ass time ago thanks in part a lot to the Greeks and Romans. And they also took a lot of aspects of Egyptian religion. Um, so the ancient Egyptians were polytheistic, so were the Greeks and the Romans. And they just, you have philosophers and scholars of ancient Greece and Rome who are writing about ancient Egypt in those writings later resurfaced. Once um, Augustus, who was a Roman emperor, topples his big rivals Cleopatra and her boyfriend Mark Antony or she he husband they weren't married How about boyfriend lover lover Lovely. they were yeah. lovers yeah yeah she yeah she would never because boyfriend say sounds like that's too, too middle he's my boyfriend too modern a term he hasn't life. changed his relationship status <laughs> to in a relationship and I just don't know okay <laughs> <laughs> Cleopatra and Mark Antony they're dead Augustus is now, like, on top of the world. He's a young, very powerful emperor, and he starts bringing back war booty from Egypt. And one of the most important in terms of later influence and just kind of presence and overall quantity of these is that he was the first to bring back obelisks. So I did a lot of my research on obelisks, and I could go on and on about obelisks, but with this process, it's really interesting. So the beginning of the obelisk history is in Egypt. So the Egyptians created the obelisk and the shape of an obelisk is in some ways similar to a pyramid in that it's wider at the base and it tapers up towards the top. However, obelisks were not meant to be inhabited at any point. They're much longer and narrower. Um, they aren't like pyramids where there are structures built underneath like tombs. And obelisks were meant to mark a pharaoh's right to rule. So a pharaoh would inscribe their name on an obelisk. Obelisks were made from one massive piece of granite. So they were very difficult to make, huge, even harder to transport. We still don't know exactly how they did it. And they would be placed at entrances to temples, in city complexes. Uh, and so these were already established as monuments of power. So then the ancient Romans then say, oh, we defeated Egypt. We're going to take all these obelisks or a lot of them, and we're going to transport them back to Rome. We're going to put them on ships. We're going to pull them with ropes and oxen. And then we're going to erect these huge phallic monuments of power. And we're going to be like the badasses Question. of the ancient world. Yes. Um, so obviously obelisks, weren't ever used as tombs, but are there any instances where there were, like, things in obelisks, like, like, jewels and things found inside not that, them? Not that I have read. I know that people in medieval Rome believed that there were bodies inside. 
And there was one um, that had a bronze globe on top of it that the Romans put in there, and they believed that the ashes of Julius Caesar were in there. Ooh, that was so relic-y. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Super um, relic-y. But it was all just kind of rumor. I, I didn't come across any instance of things being in the obelisk. An obelisk, a true obelisk, is also not hollow. It's solid. So they can't put anything. Like, more obelisks that are built, built now, like the Washington Monument, is hollow. So it's not technically a true obelisk because it's hollow. So maybe they put some bones of forefathers in there. I wouldn't be surprised. That would be like a Nicolas Cage investigation. Call them up. So emperors loved obelisks. They were like, okay, these are from Egypt. This shows that we conquered Egypt. We're going to erect them places. We're going to scratch out names of pharaohs that originally commissioned them. We're going to put ours on them. We're going to dedicate them to Roman gods, put them in temples and circuses. Um, and they became so popular in ancient Rome that they actually had to start making their own. They ran out of actually original Egyptian obelisks, so they would have them made in Egypt and then transported down. And so just by looking at the huge influence of Rome on the greater European world at the time, you know, if you even know a little bit about the ancient Roman Empire, their empire stretched a vast geographical area. And so because they had so many Egyptian sculptures and monuments and were started, admired certain aspects of ancient Egypt that this kind of spread out into other areas of their empire. And Rome itself became a city with Roman and Egyptian monuments and art. So let's talk about the kind of transition now of little, I'll talk a little bit more about the obelisks because I love them. So <laughs> the obelisks, once the fall of the Roman Empire happens, they are left relatively neglected for a long, long, long time. All of them in Rome, with the exception of one, fell off their pedestals. They broke into pieces. You know, you have plants growing all around them and they're just kind of like the ruinous rubble of Rome. But then once you're moving into kind of more of uh, like 14th century, 15th century, you have humanist scholars who are able to read ancient Greek and Latin. And through that, they start learning more about ancient Egypt from what these ancient scholars said about Egypt. And then they start noticing, oh, these obelisks. And the first idea to move a fallen obelisk and transport it to a new location in Rome emerged in the 15th century. Um, but they had a really hard time figuring out what the best way to move the, these giant things were. Uh, eventually, an engineer in the early uh, mid-16th century decided, okay, we're going to use a pulley system and timber tracks and use the power of oxen like the Romans did. And so the first obelisk that was re-erected in Rome is the one that's still today in front of St. Peter's, um, in St. Peter's Square in Rome. Pretty, pretty popular one. You've probably seen plenty of photos of it. So this starts a trend, just like where Augustus started the trend of emperors, you know, stealing obelisks and re-erecting them the first pope to move one and erect one, now all the other popes want to do it. And so they start placing them in front of churches and different squares, and they're symbols of, like, Christianity's triumph over paganism. But then they also are, you know, 
showing off that, hey, we not only have this ancient legacy of ancient Rome, but we also have the ancient legacy of the magical and wise Egyptians. You know, they really viewed Egypt in, in a lot of conflicting and confusing ways, and I'm not going to really get into it because it doesn't always make sense to me, but where on the one hand they admire a lot of things about them, but Egypt, the actual geographical place during this time, so the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, it's under Ottoman control. And so the actual place is still very other and foreign to them. It sounds like hardcore cultural appropriation oh, yeah. to me. Like, oh, yeah. Like, we love this thing yes. about this culture, but yes. also... We don't really care about that yeah. they're people necessarily. Totally, totally. And even some of the obelisks, they would exercise and baptize them because they were afraid that there was some weird pagan spiritual residue in these stones. <laughs> Dude, that's um, so funny that like pagan dust. That, <laughs> yeah, that pagan spirits dust. would leave like some physical dust yeah. that would <laughs> somehow manifest. Yeah. Like it would get because they're not a physical entity, so why would they like leave physical remnants? It doesn't make any sense. It's really goofy. So it's really goofy. I know you're gonna talk about this more, but I just wanted to observe that it's it really funny to me that there are these cycles throughout history where this Egypto mania mm-hmm. mm-hmm. comes back again and again. Totally, like you know, Victorian era, and then on top of that, I'm just mm-hmm. thinking about when everyone in the 80s was kind of obsessed with <laughs> some, like, Egypt stuff. We all remember that Michael Jackson video, which oh, was dope. my That's God. Dope video. <laughs> Who, could <forget? laughs> Who could forget? Yeah, no, it's totally true, and in looking especially at the Renaissance in Europe, we think primarily of the Renaissance as being the birth of Greek and Roman antiquity. It wasn't just that, it was also Egyptian antiquity. It it totally comes in waves in a lot of ways. And the obelisk in particular just has sort of continued to endure in terms of popularity. Eventually France, England, and later the US jump on board saying, hey, we want obelisks too. We want everyone to see how like, big and bad we are and that we have these ancient Egyptian monuments that have this long legacy of power, imperial power, for ourselves. Um, And even as recently as a few months ago, New Orleans has been um, on a campaign to remove um, Confederate monuments uh, throughout the city. And one is a obelisk and it commemorates the Battle of Liberty Place. Uh, so it's a Confederate monument, so it's considered to be, um, by today's standards, racist and offensive and outdated. And so they decided to remove it, and a lot of um, people who still support certain aspects of Confederate history, and, you know, I could use more accurate or perhaps less nice terms, but you get the gist. Um, they started, people who are still mad that they lost the Civil War. Yeah. <laughs> they refer to the Civil War as the war, which blows my fucking mind. What is, what's the full one Wait, that they use? does that really happen? The yeah. war of... Yeah. Something aggression. Yeah. Northern the war, aggression. Northern, Northern aggression. Northern aggression. Yeah. When the North was like, Man, you can't have your own confederacy. You can't have slaves. Jerks. So. Just kidding. Totally kidding. That was not even funny. <laughs> Natalie, you're out of here. Like, that was like sarcasm too far. You're, in, so, you're ejected. Yeah. You're, <laughs> you're out of here. Yeah, I know. Myself. <laughs> um, 
So essentially this obelisk uh, was removed and there were all these threats and protests surrounding it. Um, there were death threats, there were protests during the day, and so they ended up taking it down in, in the cover of night. And the workers were wearing bulletproof vests, like, looked to me like army-grade helmets, and had um, face masks on so they couldn't be identified. And all the trucks, the company names of them were blotted out, and they had snipers on guard to make sure that no one would actually try and kill these workers who were trying to remove this monument. Yeah, and Mussolini made his own obelisk to hail the fascist regime out of pure white marble, much like uh, this one in New Orleans. So the potency of the obelisk can be very controversial and has been wielded by various ruling bodies for a very, very long time. Um, but it was and still remains a powerful monument that we know about thanks to the ancient Egyptians. Next, I want to talk a little bit more about how ancient Egypt as a cultural concept took root in early modern Europe. So when I refer to like early, the early modern period, I, I kind of am covering a broad range of like later 15th century into like 17th, maybe a little 18th. So like I said a little bit earlier, like during the medieval period, people did not know as much about ancient Egypt. They were aware of certain things from ancient Egypt being in the city, especially a city like Rome. So they were familiar with obelisks, pyramids, things like that. It is interesting though, because European countries in many cases began importing artifacts, art, jewelry, and mummies as early as the 10th through 12th centuries. Mummies specifically were very popular because they were ground up into a fine powder and ingested by Europeans who believed that the powder that so had disgusting. magical qualities of youthfulness and vigor. Ugh. All about the powder mm -hmm. and the dust. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so objects from ancient Egypt were very common in Europe at this time. Of course, like if you were a baker, you weren't going to be like snuffing mummy dust in your, <laughs> you know, bathroom or whatever. It, it was more for the upper class and intellectuals, <laughs> but it was like more an intellectual activity. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like, uh, I'll snort this mummy dust. I'll be able to read these hieroglyphs wrong. No one could read Egyptian hieroglyphs during this time. Many thought that they could and would even write full books translating hieroglyphs, they were incorrect. That's embarrassing. When, when did that happen? When did we actually figure I out? I am so glad you asked. <laughs> so most of what I've been talking about in terms of Europeans' sense of ancient Egypt at this time is all objects that come to Europe. No one was really going actually to Egypt until Napoleon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So Napoleon um, had his campaign in Egypt and Syria um, towards the end of the 18th century into the early 19th century. And like I said earlier, Egypt had long been under Ottoman control. And while this campaign was going on, there was this kind of battle between France and England over trade routes in Egypt. And it was during this time that a French soldier discovered the Rosetta Stone. 
So the Rosetta Stone was this huge block. It's still it's oh still existing today. So it is. It's at the British Museum. You should check it out. Uh, it's behind a lot of thick glass. But have you seen it? Have yeah, seen it? Oh, yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. I remember I was like, "Where's the Rosetta Stone? Where is it?" And I was like, in the room where it wasn't. It was right in front of my face. <laughs> I was fourteen, so judge me not. Is it huge? Um, it's yeah. It's pretty large, and it has three different languages on it. So it has um, Egyptian hieroglyph and ancient Greek, and then it has something called Coptic. And Coptics are the, um, they were the early Christians of Egypt. So it's, it's sort of a mixture with certain aspects of hieroglyphs, but it's more, looks kind of more like cursive. I'm not saying that properly. I'm sure people that are, know a lot more would be like, you're not saying that right, but you get the gist. So what happened was that French and British scholars were in a battle. They were in a race to see who could crack the code first because up until this point, no one could read or decipher Egyptian hieroglyphs. And so there's this back and forth race. It's like a whole lot of pressure and there's a lot of national pride and, you know, identity that's built into it, you know, because the French and the British, I feel like they just have never really gotten along. They don't always like each other, lots but, you know, there. lots yeah, of competition definitely. there. And so the one to figure it out was Jean-Francois Champollion in 1822. So we were not able to read and decipher Egyptian hieroglyphs until 1822. Which if you think about it, like that was a long time ago. But, but not given, really. Not really. Yeah. Not really. So there was a lot of bullshit information <laughs> floating around before that. So really by this time, that's when more and more things from Egypt, from ancient Egypt that are still, you know, being excavated and all that are getting brought back to places like England, France. There was already a lot in Italy, of course, and eventually places like the States. And then once you branch even further into the later 18th and early 19th centuries, that's when you see Europeans going to Egypt to excavate tombs, sites, um, lost cities, one of the most famous ones I'm sure you've heard of, the discovery of King Tutankhamun's um, tomb by Howard Carter. That was in 1922. And so there's this growing fascination with how ancient Egyptians treated death, right? You know, their concept of the afterlife, all they did to prepare for the afterlife has been incredibly fascinating for a lot of um, more Western cultures because in many cases we have, don't really have that kind of concept. Likewise, with treasure, finding all of this gold and precious stone, of course, that gets people really interested. <laughs> and just the fascination with mummies. I mean, man, you go to a mummy exhibit and you feel kind of weird about it. Definitely. Definitely, yes. It's but an it's interesting also, experience. It is. It really is. Because it brings to question, like, when is it okay to put a dead body on display? Is yeah. it ever okay, right? no matter how old they are? <laughs> That's a whole other can of worms. Did you guys ever see King Tut when he was, like, on that I did. crazy tour? Me I too. Yeah. Yeah. He was, like, a rock star. <laughs> yeah. And that was, what, the 90s? Like... Um, I think no, he went on a couple. I saw one in early, like early mid 2000s, okay. maybe. I remember being really young and yeah. not quite understanding what was going on. But even like as a child, that was weird. I was like, "Wait, this is a dead person? Yeah, like, it's kind of an odd experience." Right. There's right. a really great article, and I'll find it for the sources on this one. Video that. Um, but he it talks about that exact like issue with dead bodies and like the presentation of it, and it's it's more modern like, contemporary kind of mm -hmm. exhibits, you know, those, like, weird body world ones. Oh, it yeah. deals a lot in that, right. but it also talks about mummies and stuff and the way that museums or curators, like, decide to um, just curate an exhibit about death, essentially. And there yeah. was one where they talk about trying to, like, 
make it more like lighthearted and take out the death aspect yeah. and that's like but do you want to do that yeah, like they're dead they're yeah so yeah exactly <laughs> like you gotta go it's kind of part of the deal you yeah know? In or not at all True. yeah but, agree yeah but it's no it really is yeah i want to read that that's yeah. really interesting yeah and i have um some really excellent books and then a couple videos and documentaries that i'll post for this episode too if you want to know anything more about some of the specific topics I talked about. But I've thought a lot about why ancient Egypt is still so fascinating. Like why am I so fascinated with it personally? Why um, you know does Europe and the United States have way more ancient Egyptian art and art artifacts than Egypt itself? <laughs> um, and I think you know I have some speculations. They're just speculations. I'll note that. But I think a lot of why Egypt, ancient Egypt, has such a strong presence for a lot of uh, more Western audiences is because it's in the Bible. So even if you haven't really read the Bible or if you're somewhat familiar with it, you know about Moses and the flight from Egypt and all that. So that part of it, it's it's been very ingrained in a lot of minds of a lot of people for a very long time. And I think, too, like what I mentioned earlier, the fact that the ancient Romans had a lot of things that were from ancient Egypt and because their expansion and influence was so wide. And so much of what the ancient Egyptians made was incredibly monumental. And it was a lot of the craft and the way that they did things is still a little bit mysterious. And we love that mystery of ancient Egypt. And in a lot of cases, it can get turned into more of a mythos and a kind of magical mysticism, yeah. which, of course, draws people in. <laughs> um, and it's, I'm going to end on a really – and I just heard this, like, last week. I was listening to um, TED Radio Hour in one of their more recent episodes called Hidden, and I can put a link to this as well. And the last speaker is a space archaeologist. Dope. Um, which means that she uses – this is going to be the new thing. <laughs> so cool. Um, she uses satellite imagery – processes those with algorithms to tell the difference in light spectrum to see what lies beneath the surface without actually digging. So she can, I, I'm probably simplifying that too much and not fully grasping it, but <laughs> basically satellite images, you can see like a whole city, like she found a stadium under the airport in Rome without Whoa. digging. And um, it's very cool. It's very, very That's cool. That's crazy. That's so cool. Yeah. Man. So she said about the Egyptian Delta alone that we have excavated less than one one thousandth of one percent of the total volume of Egyptian sites. What? what? That's crazy. That sink in. That is crazy. That's okay, nuts. so her job sounds really amazing. Can I just say that I'm only slightly disappointed that it's not space archaeology, as like in, on the moon. As, yeah. on, as in, like finding like ancient alien yeah. stuff oh, on like yeah. Mars or the moon or something. I bet the dude from Ancient Aliens would love to be referred to as a space archaeologist. I know. <laughs> oh my god. Totally. Anyway, though, that's super dope. No, it is. I remember that so vividly because I went home and tried to convince my brothers to become space archaeologists. Yes. <laughs> so I don't have the capacity for science to ever go that route. I know. But I was like, too. one of you needs to do this. Yeah, definitely. So yeah. I'm still waiting. If yeah. I was more if I was more science minded like in the specific kind of way it would take to have that 
that career path. That mm-hmm. sounds like an amazing, amazing direction to go. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, so that really struck me, and I think that just adds even more to why there is still so much interest in ancient Egypt and finding out more about them and looking at more um, traces of their culture because apparently there is so much more to discover. And that's undoubtedly part of this everlasting interest in ancient Egypt in addition to other things I talked about. But like I said, very brief and there are a lot of things that I glazed over, but I hope maybe you learned some new things about ancient Egypt. And uh, I think my six-year-old self would be like, all right, you could have talked about how they removed the brain through the nose cavity, but they they mushed it all they up. They just jammed it up. Um, I got a couple of questions, a <laughs> sure. couple of things. Okay, so as a as a somewhat of an obelisk expert, because uh, that's technically what we are now, which is I weird. Guess. Like yeah. after after you write an academic thesis, you're an expert on that topic, which is that makes me feel crazy. I know, right? It's really weird. Um, so <laughs> that makes me feel insane. <laughs> um, but what are your personal feelings on these massive obelisks in like contemporary cemeteries? Like that picture I yes. sent you, yeah, of yeah. Um, like the cemetery. I was, they're in cemeteries everywhere. Yeah, and yeah, and sometimes. Cemeteries are riddled with them, like, mm-hmm. as far as the eye can see. Like, yeah. it's not just one. It's oh, yeah. a field of obelisks. Yeah. Very tall. What are your thoughts on this? So, I think a lot of that points to, one, the trend of ancient Egypt coming back in cycles. Like, you have Egyptian ornament becoming really popular during um, the arts and crafts movement. And so, I think that's part of it, because you also see, like, recreations of pyramids for, like, the wealthier people that have little tombs. But I think a lot of why the obelisk in particular is quite popular in cemeteries is that they act as, you know, these really kind of obvious signifiers, like pointers up to the heaven, um, heavens, up to heaven, to the skies, <laughs> to whatever is up there. Um, so... <laughs> well, we got up there. Yeah, because um, even obviously with the ancient Egyptians, part of it was the symbol of a pharaoh's power, but it was dedicated to their gods and specific um, Ra. And so it was like the sun, the sun's, it was meant to emulate the sun's rays, which kind of come down at those angled points. So it's like an inverted sun ray in that way, if that makes sense. Um, So I think that kind of imagery and that idea of like, oh, it's pointing up towards heaven. And they even described it as a needle at some points where it could actually pierce into the divine realm acting as kind of a a bridgeway or a connecting point between earth and heaven. So I think those are the reasons that people were like, oh, yeah, I'll have an obelisk. (laughs) And plus, like, my uncle has one and my brother-in-law did one. And it almost sounds like... We work in the railroad business. I'm, you know... Like the skyscraper (laughs) of tombstones. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Size. Yeah. And... You know, I'm sure a lot of men have had obelisk tombstones. I'm sure women have too. Don't get me wrong, but they're very phallic symbols. There's no getting around that. Yeah. But I like the imagery of the, like, piercing the heavens. And stuff. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. even, like, um, Italians, like, in the 16th and 17th centuries, you, they usually wouldn't call it obelisk. They would call it needle. Because, oh. one, it's shaped like a needle, but two, acts as, like, a just, just a little puncture. In the sky. I bet you yeah. the flat earthers would love that theory. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be all about B-O-B. that. 
Who else? Kyrie Irving. Oh, There's yeah. a lot of them out there. Tila Tequila. Oh. <laughs> oh my god, I forgot about her. I forgot about her completely. Yeah. You, I mean, you don't need to remember. She's I'm, like a champion of the flat earthers. I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting. Oh. <laughs> That's good. Um, my other thing. Um, are you familiar with the story of the Egyptian tomb at the Met in New York? Mm, I don't think so. Okay, I just learned this recently, cool. um, and it, it kind of speaks to this idea of how Egyptomania just, like, recycles yeah. like, all the time. Yeah. We're just, doesn't matter what time in history, we're just like, Egypt is fucking cool, man. Yeah. Um, so I actually learned this in my recent trip to New York. Um, Brian told me, shout mm-hmm. out, Brian. So I don't know the details, but I'm going to give you a vague rundown of the story of if you've been to the Met in, the New, in um, New York City, there's a huge room with a with a full Egyptian tomb mm-hmm. in the room. Who's all been there? Has everybody been no, there? No, I, I went in seventh grade and I don't remember I much. Um, I'm the only one who hasn't been. It's a it's a full Egyptian tomb brought from Egypt, and it is the room's beautiful and the Met's beautiful. It's a very like big museum with very high ceilings and lots of open space. And so the this Egyptian tomb has its own room basically in the Egyptian wing. And it's huge. It's got, like, all this space. So you can, like, really kind of get the... It's, like, up on a platform. You can kind of get the feeling of, like, walking up to it and around it and stuff. And it's also at a part in the museum where the wall is entirely glass. So, like, you can see it from the outside. Mm. And so it's one of the main walls on the uh, the Met. And it's all glass. You can see through. You can see this museum or this tomb. And um, there was kind of a war... Between the Met and I can't remember what the other museum was, but it was another big deal museum mm-hmm. to to get this this tomb, right? And it was at a time where a lot, like, Egypt was not doing well financially and, like, selling their, their cultural heritage was basically, like, making them a lot of money. So, like, it's not like we stole it. Like, we did buy it, but still it's problematic for a lot yeah, of reasons. Yeah, um, yeah. But anyways, so... There were two museums, the Met and somewhere else, if you know, please email us, um, that were fighting over um, who was going to get this tomb. And the, the decider, the decider of this, this huge archaeological decision, you'd think maybe an Egyptologist, huh. uh, an art historian at the very least. No. <laughs> Jackie O, for some reason, was, was the decider of this decision. And, um, <laughs> and she decided on the Met. And you may ask yourself why she decided on the Met. Because it was closer to her? Well, because <laughs> basically they just, I mean, you're right. They decided that they were going, they they had, the Met had this plan that if they got the tomb, they were going to build this room for it with the glass side so that Jackie O could see it from her high-rise apartment Wow! in Manhattan. <laughs> Isn't that something? That's, that's power if I've ever heard it. That's like the kind of power that I would actually want, though. Sometimes I hear about, like, things people spend money on and shit. Like, that's that's some cool power. And that's that's to, intense. To I, be able to see an Egyptian tomb from your Manhattan high-rise. I like, know, right? I'm not saying I would do it, but... That's crazy. But, right, I think it's just a very... Very interesting example of Egyptomania oh, yeah. at work in American culture. You know? Oh, yeah. Um, so if you know any more details of that story, please send them to us. That was Certainly. kind of my vague retelling. Probably not <laughs> included in the Natalie Portman movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll check, though. Yes, so that is Egyptomania. Uh, we hope you enjoyed. 
If you have additional Egyptomania facts that you would really like to share, please let us know at arthistorybabes at gmail.com. And, or if um, there's anything you said that they'd want to hear more about. Oh, sure. yeah. There's a lot of cool stuff in there. We can I do can cool talk until yeah. my face turns blue. <laughs> and I have a lot more sources than the ones I'm Give her the opportunity, guys. If you're She's curious. asking for it. We would love to see your face turn blue, but not in like a bad way. It's just in like a cute way. Yeah. Actually, it'd probably turn red. I was going to say, I think yeah. it turn pink. Okay. Yeah, it's going to like a, a shade of tomato. 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 All right, we'll do a quick listener mail because we're still drowning in it. Oh, Sorry, man. everyone. We Drown do we it. do read all of them and they warm our hearts. So yeah. please don't feel like you go unnoticed. Yeah, we read all of them and we're trying to do this thing where we balance like new ones with old ones. So we're trying to make our way through all of them, I promise. Yeah, here we go. Who wants to read this lovely mail from Kate? I can do it. Natalie. Oh, this just this just came in. It just came in That's a few hours ago. Today. All right. It's titled, <laughs> the subject is, I must ask you a question. I slurred that. Mustache. I'm really not Mustache. That <laughs> all right. She says, hi, our hosty babes. Just wanted to say thanks for all of your amazing and hilarious podcasts. I stumbled across you ladies in search of some Frida Kahlo as I've recently fallen in love with her work and story. Totally understandable. Fair. How could but you not? Yeah. But she isn't the... Mustachioed? Wow, that's a new word for me. <laughs> she isn't the mustachioed artist I'm writing to you about. After your Salvador Dali podcast, I read about a woman in Spain's claim to be oh, in Spain yeah. claimed to be his clandestine daughter. Oh yeah, yeah. Authorities weren't able to collect conclusive DNA from his death mask, so they had to exhume his body to prove or disprove her claims. If she's right, she'll be the only heir to Dali's estate. I found the quote from Dali stating that. Quote, great geniuses produce mediocre children, and I don't want to go through that experience, end quote. Hilarious. Wow. <laughs> Joke's on you. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds so like Dolly. What a dick. Yeah. <laughs> also, the woman claiming to be his daughter is a tarot card reader. Yeah, she tying, is. tying back to your alchemy episode. Or, yeah, alchemy episode. Full circle. Anywho, below is a link about the exhumation, noting that his little mustache is still intact. His little mustache. Curious to see how this pans out. Oh. Also, I'm 10 years out of college and never once took an art or art history class. I was originally a film major, so that's a medium on its own. But thanks to the inspiration from your fabulous podcast and wanting to know more about some of the subjects you discuss, I just signed up for my first art history class at my local community college. Oh, yeah. I start in the fall and I'm super pumped. Thank you, ladies, for all the laughs, info, and inspo, and have a great time in Europe. Also, what's your address so I can send you some wine? Oh, oh. Hey. we'll send it to you promptly. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're always taking that free free wine. Yeah. But like, first off, so nice. Second, yeah. so excited that you're taking an art history class. Seriously, like, would love so to cool. know more about the subject and if you like it, if you hate it. Yeah, tell us about your experience yeah. because I feel like people have a really wide range of experiences in art history so courses. Mm-hmm. So, I, so many people are like, I fucking hated it. Yeah, but I also hear so many people say they loved it. So exactly, it's very yeah, it's very hit and miss. Some people yeah. are like it was my favorite class in undergrad. You know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Um, let us know how your experience goes, and yeah, we'll definitely get you our info. Um, but the Salvador Dali thing, anyone have any thoughts on just some crazy, uh... I think she's right. I think she's his child. I think that she's full of it. <laughs> oh. Oh, man. Boxing gloves. I would honestly have more respect for her if she is full of it, because I feel like that is some shit that Dali would have done, 
or he would yeah. Have been like, yeah, I am the child of this uh, prodigy. <laughs> and you must we exhume also, his body. We also lived five lives, past lives together. So I think whether she's full of it or not, I think it's great. I think it's great. It's interesting. It's definitely interesting. So. Doesn't I mean, make me upset. So and she doesn't curious. she because you read something about it, Ginny, and doesn't she have like legitimate like yeah like reason to kind of believe? Yeah, this? her mom like worked uh, in some place where he went a lot, and her mom was like, "Yeah, we slept together many times." <laughs> <laughs> My only thing about that is just that why now? No, no, not why now. It's just that my entire life that I've ever looked up anything about Dali like the big thing about Dali was that he was impotent mm-hmm. he couldn't sexually perform so I don't know that but, makes me a little bit skeptical and then but there's so I totally could see you being right about that but there's also so many different reasons for impotence and like it's not necessarily like all the you know what I mean? Yeah. Like what if yeah. he was like often not able to get it up? But every once in a while. Yeah. Like <laughs> who knows? I just don't know enough about Maybe he was emasculated by God. Maybe it was the she cigarettes. was so powerful. Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys see that cigarette box? Wasn't that with you guys? Was oh you guys my god. Oh, yeah. Really oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's for the next episode. <laughs> okay. Oh wait, wait, no, that's for yeah. We should have drawn a little Dolly mustache on oh. him. We will discuss in our, we're going to do a post-Europe episode where we discuss all of our adventures and we will we will examine the, the cigarette boxes that we, <laughs> we saw while in yeah. Europe. So we'll, we'll, a thesis we'll talk that. about the cigarette boxes um, and um, we'll continue on with this theory that we have but um <laughs> yeah i don't know you know what who knows right if it's i true, guess we'll find out soon i mean yeah I'm because sure, they're yeah. gonna um they're gonna like dna test right yeah that's yeah. crazy to I me i know right how does she how do you get that to this? happen that's yeah. expensive dude right? you exhumed him yeah and now you're gonna dna test she must be like well, the... an amazing therapist <laughs> so our sweet friend renjad talk uh, tagged us in this article about it. Oh, yeah. And they're yeah, kind yeah. of discussing it. So it sounds like the Salvador Dali Theater Museum is kind of carrying the brunt of... I don't know if they're paying for it, but it sounds like they're doing it hmm. and um, dragging their feet the whole way and calling it inappropriate. So. <laughs> <laughs> curious, curious, curious. Yeah. Well, we will find out, and we will obviously comment when we oh, do find out. Um, if you If you got any... Any guesses either way? Send them to us. We could start like a, could start like a bet. Like, oh, is oh. is is she his daughter? Is she not? Yeah. Um. But yeah. So that that's all we got. Yeah. We get to mania. Thank yeah. you, Ginny. That was very interesting. Thank you all. Um. And thank you, ancient Egypt. <laughs> and contemporary you. Egypt. All of Egypt. All of Egypt. Yeah, if you have any questions, comments, email us at arthistorybabes at gmail.com. Um, if you like us and are about what we're doing, write us a review on iTunes. It's, like, really important and really awesome whenever it happens. I was reading them the other day. It made me happy. Yeah, they're really nice. And you can also help us out by going to our Patreon, patreon.com slash arthistorybabes, donating, you know, a dollar, 50 cents. Two dollars, whatever. Like it all helps and helps us make a better podcast. Um, oh, also make sure to check out our blog tag on our website www.historybabes.com. Ginny just posted a blog post about um, the Louisiana Louisiana. Museum of Modern Art. (laughs) 
In Denmark. In Denmark. It's not in Louisiana. It's in Denmark. It's in Denmark. Um, so go read that and be paying attention to that stuff. Find us on Instagram at Art History Babes Podcast. Twitter at Art History Babes. I think our Twitter game's getting a little better. We're working on it. Um, like us on Facebook. You know the whole drill, all that stuff. Thank you so much for listening. You're all fantastic. Bye. Bye. From Cabernet to Montmartre, they're here to slay the art history babes. Like after yeah. after you write an academic thesis, you're an expert on that topic, which is that makes me feel crazy. I know, right? <laughs> it's really weird. Um, so <laughs> that makes me feel insane. <laughs> Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.